Please open up God's Word this morning, your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 47, and we'll read down to verse 53 here in a second. We are continuing our series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. And specifically at this moment in this series, which is a chronological walk through the life of Jesus, specifically at this moment, we are in Matthew 13, which is a very important section of Jesus' teaching, a very important portion of his ministry. This is the um, section of Scripture commonly referred to as the kingdom parables. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus has begun to teach more regularly in parables. And specifically in this passage of Scripture, he is proclaiming the true nature of the kingdom of God. Now today we're going to look at the last two parables of this kingdom parables section But we'll focus primarily, and your sermon points uh, today will be drawn primarily from the final parable. Um, As you're finding your way to that text this morning, I have some pictures. I don't know if you guys paid attention to the news this week, but um, there was something really cool that happened this week in Oklahoma. I think it was in Oklahoma City. There was a really neat find, a really neat discovery that some workers came across in Oklahoma City. They were um, renovating a school, tearing out walls when they discovered some old chalkboards. Anybody hear about this story? Okay, they discovered some old chalkboards, and on those old chalkboards were well-preserved, perfectly preserved writings and drawings from 100 years ago. So here's some of the pictures from that school. So 1917 was when this chalkboard was last used, December of 1917. And um, actually, I think it's probably November of 1917 because there was some details about the calendar that people were trying to figure out. But um, apparently the students were getting ready for Thanksgiving. And so you see there's a picture of a turkey there and a, and a young lady. These were school blackboards from 100 years ago. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this one sort of baffled people as they saw it. This is some sort of teaching tool, apparently to teach uh, multiplication. It was some sort of uh, multiplication table or circle used back in the early 1900s. And uh, furthermore, we see some, let's see here, some other things. Uh, a lesson about the pilgrims. And look at that cursive. You don't see cursive like that anymore. I mean, that's beautiful. Uh, lessons about the pilgrims, speaking about the true reason the pilgrims came over here, not to persecute Indians, but to have religious freedom. And you see that written there on the board, uh, drawings of, of the different uh, pilgrims. Uh, and look at this. This was written on one of the boards. I give my head, my heart, and heart sort of erased there, and my life to my God and one nation, indivisible with justice for all. You definitely don't see that on blackboards anymore in our schools today. And so here we have these perfectly preserved um, chalkboard writings and drawings from 100 years ago. That kind of stuff fascinates me. When I see that, I just, I can't help but just kind of project myself back 100 years and think about what life was like back then. I can only imagine that this school in Oklahoma City was much smaller back then. Well, the reason I even bring up that illustration this morning is that in these final two parables of today's text, we we are challenged, particularly in the last one, We are challenged to be disciples of the kingdom who understand and proclaim the new and the old. We are to see the beautiful old truths of God's 
word, the old covenant revelation, but we are to see it in a new light, in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is its fulfillment. Just as those old chalkboards were were hidden, unseen for so long, they were revealed when the building was being restored and renewed. And so too Christ, as he restores and renews the sinful heart through regeneration, he enables men to see what was previously hidden, what couldn't previously be seen in the Old Testament. Namely, the full nature of the kingdom of God and how all the scripture, every page, pointed to Jesus himself. The new enables us to understand the old. So with that, let us stand now as we read this very important passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 53. Matthew 13, 47 is where we're going to start, and this is the word of the Lord. This is why we stand when we read the word, because we believe that it is infallible, inerrant. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this question that Jesus asks, Have you understood these things? will hang over our head this morning and cause us to want to come to your scriptures as learners. Cause us to come to your scriptures with hearts that want to be transformed. So God, we pray that your Holy Spirit will move in this place and give all of us ears to hear. Give us hearts that will be receptive, fertile soil where the seeds of your word can fall and then produce fruit. Lord, give me a mouth to speak accurately this morning. Give all of us insight into the great truths of these kingdom parables. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, there was in Jesus' day great misunderstandings regarding the nature of the kingdom of God. And there is, unfortunately, misunderstandings in our day too. Now these parables are given to the first disciples and are given to us to undo those misunderstandings. The Jewish leaders and most of the Jewish crowds who were at that time clamoring around Jesus during this point of his ministry were expecting a political, military messiah who would set up an immediate political, military kingdom. They didn't expect a kingdom to be announced by a meek carpenter. 
and that it would be a gradual two-phase inbreaking of a kingdom. They expected to be delivered from all their earthly troubles and enemies. They didn't see that the inbreaking of the true kingdom involved a greater deliverance from spiritual troubles and spiritual enemies, namely their own sin and Satan. They expected the promised land to once again be theirs alone. They didn't see that the true kingdom promised more than a swatch of land in the Middle East. Instead, it promised the whole earth. More than that, it promised the cosmos. They expected the Gentiles to be brought under submission to God's rule. They didn't see that the nature of the true kingdom would indeed involve submission of the Gentiles to the Messiah. However, not as slaves, but brothers. They expected a son of David to immediately set up an earthly throne in Jerusalem. They didn't see that the true king of the kingdom was already on the scene. And he indeed was a son of David, the son of David, but he was also the son of God, human yet divine. They didn't see that as the second person in the Godhead was there present with them. And as his ministry continued... He was ruling, and as he was crucified, he would be seated at the right hand of the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, which, according to Ephesians 2, verse 6, I think Colossians 2, verse 6, which we read earlier, his throne is not only in this age, but also the age to come. So to sum it up, their idea of the kingdom was was man-centered, it was fleshly, it was earthly, and it was tiny. And because their eyes were on earthly things instead of heavenly ones, they couldn't see the kingdom in all of its glory. It was hidden from those without eyes of faith. So Jesus teaches these parables to to unseat these lesser expectations of the kingdom. So Jesus gives them eight parables. And so I want to recap those real quick for you with showing you the structure of of the chapter. Let's see if I can get this going. And there are the parables, and it's in a chiastic structure, as I've mentioned before. First, there was the parable of the soils, or the sower. And this this parable was helping them see that the proclamation uh, of the kingdom wouldn't be received by everyone. There would be limited reception of the kingdom, despite the fact that supposedly all the Jews were looking for the kingdom and excited about the coming of the kingdom at this time. The parable of the soils teaches us that very few would actually receive the kingdom. Matter of fact, three of the four soils didn't receive the message of the kingdom. Then there was the parable of the weeds, where the weeds and the wheat grew up together, the wheat representing the the righteous, the weeds representing the wicked. And that parable, by the way, parallels the parable of the dragnet, which is one of the ones we're going to look at today. This chiastic structure is done that way, where A matches B, B matches A, and then B matches B, and C matches C. So the parable of the weeds and the wheat matches this parable of the dragnet that we're going to look at today. But the whole point of that is the already not yet nature of the kingdom. That the kingdom had arrived, but the righteous and the wicked would continue to coexist until Christ's return, till the second advent. And then there was the parables of the, of the mustard seed and the leaven. And in those parables, Jesus is, is teaching about the mysterious, hidden, yet unstoppable nature of the kingdom. Though they couldn't, couldn't see it, it was growing. Though it seemed to be weak, it was strong. Eventually, it, it would spread out so far that, that people from all nations of the earth would find their refuge in the mustard seed tree that eventually would sprout. 
And after that, those two parables, the, the mustard seed and the leaven, which are twin parables, after that point right there, the rest, second half of the parables, Jesus no longer is teaching to the crowds. Now he's just focusing on his disciples with, the, with these other parallel parables. And so then we have the, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. And what we saw in that, that was despite its inconspicuous, mysterious, hidden nature, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure beyond all comprehension. We saw that last week as Deemer preached on the great value of the kingdom and how we are to pursue the kingdom above all other things. And then today we have the parable of the dragnet and the parable of the new and the old treasures, which is actually a parable of the, of the household manager. And in these last parables, um, we, will, we will focus in on what Jesus is saying. But again, that parable of the dragnet corresponds with the parable of the weeds. And the parable of the new and the old corresponds with the first parable because it's all about how the, parable, how the, how the kingdom is proclaimed. So let's look first of all quickly at the parable of the net or the dragnet. And again, we see Jesus using, using uh, images from everyday Jewish life. He's probably, you remember back at the beginning of this chapter, he, he starts off in the boat. He gets in the boat to teach to the crowds. Now I'm guessing, because we haven't seen otherwise, that he's probably still in the boat. Even though he's just talking to his disciples now, he's probably still sitting in the boat. So he's in a fishing boat. And remember, most of his disciples are fishermen. At least the 12 were. Most of them were. They're fishermen. So he, now he's giving them this image that they'll be very, very familiar with. I can imagine them them sitting there in the boat with him and, and Peter saying, all right, now you're speaking our language, Jesus. I've never found a treasure in a field. I've never found a great pearl, but I understand fishing. So Jesus now begins to give this parable and it says in verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Now the fishing of ancient Galilee, and you probably know this, was done with large nets that were weighted on the bottom with flotation devices on the top the nets were dragged along the seafloor. They would go to where they thought there would be a school of fish and drag it along the seafloor. The net would then be pulled up either into the boat or if it was a too large of a net, it would be dragged back to the shore. And there, the fish, once the net was brought in, would be sorted. And that's what we see in verse 48. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. And again, we see the connection. We see the connection that this parable has with the parable of the wheat and the weeds because in verses 40 through 42 in Jesus' explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds we see words that are almost identical to the words we read here in verses 49 and 50. So look at verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, what we're seeing here is the already not yet nature of the kingdom. The picture here is of what happens at the very end of the age, the time when this age ends and the age to come begins. And the changeover of the ages involves a day of judgment. And that's what's being pictured here. This, this parable is not, as some uh, say, a picture of evangelism. Don't mix up Jesus' fishing metaphors. He may use a metaphor of fishing in one parable, and he's using it in a different way in another parable. So this isn't a, a parable about evangelism. Nor is it a picture of the church as being a, 
a mixed group of unbelievers and believers, as others claim. We know that this isn't the case because the parable that it's connected with, the parable of the weeds and the wheat, in that parable, if you'll remember, when I taught a few weeks back, we saw very clearly in verse 38 that the field where the wheat and the weeds were growing was the world, not the church. It's the world. So too here we must see that as the net gathers the fish, it is referring to the very end of the age when all people who have ever lived in this world will, like helpless fish, be brought before the Lord for judgment. So the righteous, those who have faith, faith in Christ and therefore have been found in him, will be gathered into the presence of the Father. But the wicked, those who have not believed and thus are outside of Christ, will be thrown away. Now the fish that Jewish fishermen would have thrown away would have been the fish that are, that are listed in Leviticus 11. Unclean fish, for example, fish that had no scales or fins. Those were unclean fish. So, so the image here is at the end of the age, God will separate the clean from the unclean. Those who have not been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb will be thrown into the fiery furnace. But those who have been cleansed will be brought into the presence of Christ. Now in this parable, we again see that Jesus is dividing humanity into two groups. There's the saved and there's the lost. There's good fish, bad fish, wheat, weeds, sheep, goats, wide gate, narrow gate, easy road, hard road. The testimony of Jesus is consistent with all the scriptures. There is only two ways to live. There are only two ways to live. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. The family of God, the family of Satan. The spiritually reborn, the spiritually dead. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. There is a fork in the road of human destiny and there is no third way. I was reminded of that this week as I um, um, was listening to a free download of an audiobook uh, of Tortured for Christ. And I read the book years ago, but I was listening to it again. And if you haven't ever read the book, you can go on to uh, Christian Audio, and they may still be allowing you to download it for free. Uh, Tortured for Christ, written by a pastor named Richard Vermbrandt, who was a pastor in Romania during the communist years and was terribly persecuted and tortured. For Christ, hence the name Torture for Christ. But in that book there, it's quite amazing. Communism didn't just sweep in and immediately crush the church and start persecuting people. Communism snuck in and many in the church accepted it. Many in the church gave in to the communist demands. It was only those who were not willing to give and who understood there is no third way. There is no way to accommodate true Christian belief with what the atheistic worldview the communists have. There's no way to do that. To the point that some pastors were even declaring that Stalin's words were a third revelation. You had Moses, Jesus, and Stalin. And the church became corrupted. So too in our day there is no third way. There's the way of the righteous, there's the way of the wicked, and we live in a culture, it's not communism, it's secular humanism, that's trying to push us down a road where we can say, somehow the church can find a third way to fit in with all the secular humanism of our age and still be the church. 
That's not how Jesus presents things. Matter of fact, Jesus is very discriminating. He discriminates between those who will receive eternal life and those who will not. And the most loving thing we can do for our fellow man is to preach that truth. We cannot go through life assuming that nice people are going to heaven or duped into thinking that all men are born morally neutral and are basically good in their heart of hearts. That lie sends people to hell. We must show the world that there is a great discrimination coming at the end of the age. And those without Christ, those who remain in their sin, those who remain unclean in the sin they were born with will perish eternally. We must not be afraid to share that very discriminating message. That great day of discrimination was coming, but not yet. There is still time, for behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I beg you to consider the claims of Christ. Consider the fact that he says there's only two ways to live and turn to him while you can. Now after reminding them of this already not yet nature of the kingdom, Jesus looks at them in verse 51 and he says, Have you understood all these things? Now, I can only imagine how intimidating that probably was. I mean, I I, I got intimidated in in school when my teacher would look at me and say, have you understood all these things? Because I knew that I hadn't, okay? But, you know, not or whatever. I can only imagine how intimidating you have the, the Savior of the world, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, staring you in the eye saying, did you get it? Did you understand All these things. And then he gives them one final parable. Verse 52. After they answer yes. He says therefore. Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Is like a master of a house. Who brings out of his treasure. What is new and what is old. Now the first seven parables. Were about the nature of the kingdom. And this last parable. Is about the kingdom's citizens. Those who are going to teach the kingdom. So now I want us to make a few observations and applications from this final parable. And the first is simply this. We are called to comprehend the true nature of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 51 again. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Now as you can probably guess, the verb understand, well, it means that. It means to perceive clearly. It could be translated, do you see these things clearly? Do they make sense? Are they registering with you? Do you get it? Now, disciples of Jesus must understand the kingdom. I'm glad that there is in our day and in our circles a resurgence of focus on the overarching narrative of of the Bible, biblical theology, and the resurgence of a study and focus on the kingdom and how that theme fits into and drives the story. How, the, how the, the theme of kingdom drives the story of God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I'm glad that there is a resurgence of that. And this question that Jesus asked the disciples is the question that we should be asking of ourselves too. Have we understood these things? Do we understand the kingdom? Do we understand what's driving the story? Now, there's a big focus on understanding here in chapter 13. Those without understanding are said to be outside the kingdom. But those with understanding are 
said to be in the kingdom. Look at verse 13. You can back it up a little bit here. Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then later in the parable of the sower, as Jesus is explaining that parable in verse 19, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And then in verse 23, contrasting that, he says this, as for the, what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Those who understand are in the kingdom. Therefore, understanding what Jesus has said in chapter 13, I would say is pretty important. I think it's pretty important that we get what Jesus is saying in chapter 13. But we live in a theologically indifferent era, don't we? Theological apathy and biblical illiteracy dominate the church. It absolutely dominates the church in our day. So when you begin to have discussions about the nature of the kingdom with people, sometimes they'll look at you like you're speaking a foreign language. Others will, in, in, in sort of a self-congratulatory tone, say something like this, I don't worry about all that stuff. I just love Jesus. I, I can't imagine that that answer would have pleased Jesus. Do you understand these things? Oh, I, I really don't worry about all this stuff. You know, theology. No, Jesus, I just love you, man. You're my homeboy. I don't think that would have flown. It shouldn't fly today. It shouldn't be acceptable. There are a lot of people, friends, who quote-unquote love Jesus but are going to hell. They love Jesus but have no idea who he really is, what he actually accomplished, how his redeeming work was carried out. So what they've done is put their faith in a life coach and not in a savior. They can't explain the nature of the gospel, the kingdom, or the church. Theological apathy that answers Jesus' question, have you understood these things with no, but it's no big deal, is not acceptable. So our understanding that we're talking about here this morning isn't to be surface level, but comprehensive. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? Do you get it? All these parables. I'm afraid that the words of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 are so applicable to our generation of believers. Whoever wrote Hebrews said this, You have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. The reason the church in America is going down the so-called third way and trying to accommodate the scriptures to a secular culture is because we have a generation of spiritual infants filling our pews of our churches. They'll go where an infant will go wherever you lead the infant. 
A child will follow anyone so long as you hold candy in front of them. So the culture holds its candy in front of the church. Acceptance, tolerance, you'll be liked, come on. And we go after it because we're infants in the word. Christians are expected to mature, to understand the kingdom. Jesus isn't telling us these things simply to pique our interest or to entertain us or to fill our minds with obscure things to debate about. No, he's giving us truth that must be understood and embraced. And that embracing of the truth should change the way we live our lives. This is basically Jesus' application portion of his parable sermon here. Every good sermon needs to have application in it, right? So here we are, the end of Jesus' sermon that involved eight parables, and the last parable is a parable of application. Do you get these things? Do you understand them? So, if we understand these things, it should change the way we live. So I want Jesus' question to hang over our heads this morning. Have we, the people of Harbin's, heard and understood Jesus? If so... This parable will change us. The parable of the sower, all these parables will change us. The parable of the sower will cause us to look at our hearts, to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith, to make our calling and election sure by asking, do I hear the word of God with faith? Do I accept it with faith? Is it producing fruit in me? Is it causing me to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? That's the, that should be the application that comes from the first parable. And then the second parable, have we heard and understood Jesus? If so, then the parable of the wheat and the weeds will produce in us patience and perseverance and a heavenward gaze as we live in in the world but not of the world. It will cause us to conduct ourselves with fear throughout our time of exile, knowing that we are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. It will give us the long-suffering needed to live in the already stage of the kingdom while we await the not yet. Have we heard and understood Jesus? Well then, if so, the parable of the mustard seed will encourage us. For though the kingdom may seem small now, it's growing. Indeed, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among us, since the day we heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It should fuel our missionary zeal. Because we know from that parable that people from every tribe, nation, language, And people are going to find their refuge in the branches of the kingdom. And the parable of the leaven will propel us forward. For we know that the gospel is going forth in power and it's unstoppable. And one day when Christ returns, the whole world will be leavened. For the kingdom of men will become the kingdom of God. And we will inherit the earth. Have we heard and understood Jesus? If so, then the parable of the hidden treasure will stoke our joy. It will stoke our joy and give us faith to press on. For we are united to a Savior who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The parable of the pearl of great value will cause us to to turn our gaze from, from lesser treasures and onto Jesus. It will lead us to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So have we heard and understood Jesus? If so, it'll change the way we live. It will. The disciples answered Jesus' question here. And I think they did so honestly. 
Perhaps they were intimidated, like I said earlier, but they say yes. They were, they were beginning to grasp the kingdom. Their, their preconceived notions of the kingdom were being undone. Now, sure, they, they didn't totally grasp it yet because we see throughout the Gospels they still have questions. They still have misunderstandings. You know, Peter rebukes Jesus after Jesus tells him, basically, I'm going to be crucified and, and, and explains the crucifixion to him. Jesus rebukes. I mean, Peter rebukes Jesus. So they still had some, some misunderstandings, but they were starting to get it. And so Jesus takes them at their word so that if they do understand what he has said, it should change the way they live. And that's what we see next. We are called to comprehend the true nature of the kingdom. And if we comprehend the true nature of the kingdom, we will proclaim the kingdom. The next thing Jesus says in this text may seem a little bit baffling to us. Verse 52. He said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So the word therefore here, Jesus is tying when he says that word. Therefore, he is tying what he's about to say to their answer. Okay, they answered yes, and Jesus says, okay, in light of what you said, because you said yes, in light of that, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. The question is, what does that mean? Well, the word scribe means more than what we may first think. A scribe in in the Jewish culture wasn't just a secretary or, or someone who who simply sat around and mindlessly made copies of the scriptures. The scribes were experts. They were students. They were interpreters and also teachers of the scriptures. Some of the priests were scribes and most of the Pharisees were scribes. In a general sense, the word meant a ardent student of the scriptures. So Jesus is calling on his disciples to be Experts, students, interpreters, and teachers, proclaimers of the kingdom. And if you are a disciple here this morning, that call is for you too. Just as it was for these first disciples. Scribes studied and taught. They shared what they had learned. So too we are to study and teach. We are to share what we have learned. Now the phrase here in the ESV Scribe who has been trained for the kingdom is not the literal rendering of the Greek. I wish it was, but it's not. The, the New American Standard Bible has it better. It says this in the NASB, that the scribe, it, it describes the scribe as one who has become a disciple of the kingdom. So instead of one who is being trained for the kingdom, one who has become a disciple of the kingdom. I think we miss something with the ESV translation. What do we miss? We miss the personification of the kingdom. The kingdom isn't just an object. The kingdom is a person. We are not just scribes trained for the kingdom. We are scribes who are disciples of the kingdom. That's what the Greek says. Disciple of the kingdom. The kingdom is personified. And I believe this is totally consistent with what we taught earlier about the kingdom. Which is that Jesus is the kingdom. He is the people of God standing in our place. He is the place where God and man meet in the flesh. He is the rule of God reigning and ruling over the hearts of his people. Jesus is the kingdom. Therefore, we are indeed disciples of the kingdom. The kingdom is all about Jesus. Therefore, as scribes, we teach, we preach, 
we proclaim Jesus. Now, another thing Jesus is doing here by calling his disciples scribes is he is contrasting his disciples with the Jewish scribes of the day. Those men that Jesus so often had run-ins with. He's always having run-ins with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes. Jesus reserves his harshest words for the scribes. But he reserves his harsh words for them not because they were religious, but because they were wrong. There is a big misconception in the church today that Jesus hates religion. What do I mean by that? You see, people look at the Pharisees and the scribes and they'll say something like, you see, Jesus' harshest words were for religious people. And in doing so, they will then turn around and say, pursuing holiness is just legalism. You don't want to be like the Pharisees. You don't want to be a Pharisee. So when you begin to preach holiness, when you begin to preach sanctification, you get a pushback. Wait a second, we don't want to be Pharisees. Friends, Jesus didn't have harsh words for the Pharisees because they were religious. He had harsh words because they were wrong. In other words, their religion was focused on the wrong thing. So too today, friends. Jesus has an issue with religion that is pointed at the wrong thing. Think about Paul. Paul remained just as zealous and religious after he was converted. But now his zeal was pointed at Jesus. It was pointed at the kingdom. So I think we need to see that this morning. We need to see that what Jesus is talking about here, or as Jesus is talking about us being scribes, he is talking about us being people who understand the kingdom correctly as opposed to the scribes of Jesus' day, the Jewish scribes who didn't understand the kingdom correctly. The reason he opposed them was because they were pointing people away from the kingdom. They were obscuring the truth. They tied heavy burdens on people, hard to bear, and laid them on people's shoulders. They tied mint and dill and cumin, but neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. They cleaned the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they were full of greed and self-indulgence. They were whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appeared beautiful, but within were full of dead people's bones and, and all uncleanliness. They shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for they neither entered themselves nor allowed those who would enter to go in." These were Jesus' words for the scribes of the day. So that's why Jesus was so harsh on them. But Paul, as I mentioned earlier, he became a new type of scribe. And so too Jesus' disciples were to be a new type of scribe who proclaimed to everyone the way of salvation. They were to proclaim that the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And they were to call on people to repent and believe the gospel. But why did the Jewish scribes miss it? They missed it because they failed to see Jesus in the scriptures that they studied. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And that leads me to our last point for the day. We are called to comprehend the true nature of the kingdom. And if we comprehend the true nature of the kingdom, we'll proclaim the kingdom. And if we proclaim the kingdom... We must do so by teaching the whole counsel of God in the light of Christ. Verse 52 again. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom, and again, I think that's better translated, who is a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, is like a master of a house 
who brings out of his treasure that what is, what is new and what is old. Jesus again here is using a familiar scene. That of a, of a master of a household serving his guests. He uses this familiar image to describe how his disciples were to, to share the kingdom with the world. His disciples were to be like masters of a house. I used to love going to, I still love going to Arkansas and visiting Heather's family. But in particular when her grandfather was still alive, I used to love going and to, to, to talk to who we call Papa Jess. We go and we talk to Papa Jess. Because Papa Jess, when he came, he made you feel welcome. And he would bring out what was old and what was new. He would bring out stories that were very old. And he would, he would start telling stories that you'd never heard before. He was, it was fun to go in there. And he'd bring out pictures of Vietnam and different things. Or actually, World War II. And different things that he would show you when he was in the war. And it was amazing and it was interesting. And he made you feel welcome. And that's the image here of the, of, the, of the household manager bringing in what is old and what is new to serve his guests. And so we see in this scene here. Out of this treasure, which means the storehouse, that the master is bringing out what is new and what is old. What does this mean? The new is the new light of truth seen in Jesus Christ. The old is the old revelation of the old covenant. They are not at odds, nor does the new cancel out the old. Instead, the new gives fuller and final meaning to the old. And brings God's revelation to a close. That's what Hebrews 1.1 was all about. Long ago at many times in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The scribe who is a disciple of the kingdom. Understands how the old. The old covenant. And the Old Testament scriptures. The law, the prophets, the writings. Pointed to and were ultimately fulfilled. By the new. The new covenant reality. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me say this quite clearly. If Jesus himself is not the lens by which we interpret the Old Testament, then we are not scribes of the kingdom. We are simply like the Jewish scribes who missed the fact that Moses and all the prophets wrote about Jesus. I say that with every bit of conviction in my heart. A scribe of the kingdom sees Jesus on every page. A scribe of the kingdom sees Jesus on every page. A scribe of the kingdom reads the Old Testament through Jesus' spectacles. The scribes of the Pharisees had what was old, but they didn't see it in the light of the new. Oh, friends, let us see that Jesus was teaching the disciples on that road to Emmaus to be scribes of the kingdom. And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He was training his disciples to be scribes of the kingdom later when he would say that everything written about himself and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He was teaching his, his disciples to be scribes of the kingdom and he was contrasting them to the foolish scribes of the Pharisees when he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so his disciples became scribes of the kingdom. Peter was a scribe of the kingdom when in Acts 2 he brought out of his treasure the old by quoting Joel 2, 28 through 32. But showed that it was being fulfilled in the new things that the Spirit of God was doing in the church of Jesus Christ on that day of Pentecost. 
Stephen, one of the first deacons, was a scribe of the kingdom in Acts 7 when he brought out of his treasure the old stories of the Israelites rejecting God's redemptive work. And thus he showed them that they were likewise rejecting the new and final redemptive work that God had done in Jesus Christ. Philip, another deacon, was a scribe of the kingdom in Acts 8 when he brought out of his old treasure that brought out of his treasure the old by opening his mouth and beginning with Isaiah 53, he told the Ethiopian eunuch the new and exciting good news that this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul was a scribe of the kingdom when he went into every town bringing out of, the, out of his treasure the old by reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures trying to show them that Jesus Christ was the new and final revelation of God. James the pastor of the Jerusalem church was a scribe of the kingdom when he settled one of the very first church disputes by bringing out of his treasure the old prophecy about the restoration of Israel from Amos 9, 11 through 12 and said that it spoke of the new reality that the Gentiles were now the part of the people of God. And Matthew himself is a scribe of the kingdom. 68 times Matthew cites the Old Testament showing how it pointed to Jesus. Sixty-eight times he brought out of his treasure the old and displayed it in the light of the new. The new work of God reveals what was hidden in the old. Like those chalkboards as the new work of renovation was being done on that school. Revealed the treasure that was always there. So as scribes of the kingdom then we must be like the apostle Paul who in Acts 20, verse 27, declared that he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Christian, here this morning, have we understood these things? We must not neglect the new or the old. We must bring out what is new and what is old, for it is one story. It is one full revelation of God. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all about Jesus. Are we submitting our views of the kingdom, our understanding of the biblical story to Jesus for those views to be molded by his words? Are we, unlike so many of the Jews, willing to put aside man-made systems and earthly-minded frameworks? Are we willing to wrestle with Jesus' question, have you understood these things? Are we willing to let Jesus be our school teacher? And if we have wrestled with these things and we have seen the glory of the kingdom, then we can't be silent. Let us proclaim from the rooftops that we are part of a kingdom. We are part of a people. We have been rescued and we are, we are now serving a risen and reigning king. Let us teach the kingdom. Let us teach the whole counsel of God in the light of the glory of the, Christ, of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And if you're here this morning and you've never bowed your knee to King Jesus, let me remind you of the first parable we looked at today. There is a day of reckoning coming. The net of God's just and perfect judgment is closing in. No man will be able to wiggle his way out of God's grasp. And on that day when his angels draw that net ashore, he will sort the clean fish from the unclean. He will sort the saved people from the lost. He will sort the disciples from the rebels. So friend, I beg you to not wait any longer, but call upon the name of the Lord the only name that can save you this day. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would go forth and not return void. Father, I pray that all of us in here would be submissive to submissive to the word. Oh, Father, we believe that there are other things that are helpful. There are great books that great men have written. There are some great articles that godly people have penned. There's blogs out there that have good things to say. There are wonderful creeds and confessions of the church. But none of those things serve as an authority over our hearts. Let us come underneath the word of God. And so far as any of those books, any of those articles, any of those blogs, and any of those great creeds and confessions of the faith, so far as any of those are underneath the word of God and consistent with the word of God, then we embrace them. And Lord, I pray the same thing about my sermon this morning. So far as it's actually submitted to the word, let it be effective. Lord, if there be anything I've said this morning that is not accurate, Lord, cause the people in here to have holy amnesia. So Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for the old, the old treasures, the hidden gems, things hidden from of old, as Asaph said. And we praise you for the new, the new covenant that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So all glory be to Jesus, whether it be from the old or the new. All glory be to Jesus this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.